Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited to have Eva Pascoe back on the show. Eva is a digital leader who has pioneered the internet, e-payments, e-commerce fashion solutions, and CRM. Eva co-founded the world's first internet cafe in 1994, and she developed fashion web shops for including Topshop Topman, Dorothy Perkins, Racing Green, and Burton. After a successful Crowdcube fundraising campaign in January of 2017, Eva joined Bluebella as a non-executive director overseeing the brand's digital acquisition and international e-commerce strategy. Since 2013, her e-commerce consultancy, The Retail Practice, has been advising the largest pan-European lingerie brand, Hunkermüller. Eva regularly speaks at key retail industry events run by the Retail Institute and runs a weekly digital innovations blog, The Retail Bites. She is an active angel investor with a focus on female founders, and she is also a mentor for Block Dojo, which is a blockchain incubator for startups. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about CBDCs, what's in store, we talk about crypto, and more. I hope you enjoy this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Eva, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome back. Hello, welcome. (laughs) And we're going to be talking about CBDCs today, so central bank digital currencies, or what's referred to as the digital pound in the UK. And it's a topic that I know Cyber Salon and you have been exploring for a few months now. Since you were on the show, Cyber Salon held an event on the future of money. In fact, I was invited to speak at the event and you've also published a book made up of non-fiction short stories about the future of money and it's impressive writing. And from memory, I know that Eva, you had your own story published in that book and it was a fantastic story. I wonder whether before we dive in, you can share a little bit about that, about some of the events and what you've been exploring around the future of money and also with the book that was published recently. Well, thank you very much for invitation. It's so nice to be here on the Paris again. Yes, it's been a really busy year. I've been thinking about collaborative money for quite a long time. You know, the Cyber Salon organization is actually cooperative. So we've been exploring the aspects of collaborative finance for probably a good three years now. Mm. And the opportunity has come last year to do a bit of forecasting, you know, what if kind of short stories about what would happen if money innovation has speeded up a bit. And it concluded with a number of short stories led by Stephen Oram, who does a lot of what if forecasting for Ministry of Defense and various people like scientists. So we were looking, the question was, what if? And we approached a number of sci-fi writers who also write on science and ended up with really interesting array of stories. One of them was working through what would happen if there was multiple money. So Paul Corion wrote this brilliant story about a little bot that each of us will have in our headphones. And as we go through our day, that bot will negotiate 
and handle our payment. If you want to pay something in, let's say, in a supermarket, you'll probably use your current, possibly CBDC digital pound. But if you are looking at the financial investment and buying something through, let's say, online investment portal, you may be tempted to use crypto money and that little bot can help you out in your day negotiating various exchange rates and multi-currency universe. And it was really, really fun because it sort of felt like that's the way it's going. So one of the experts who helped us out was David Birch, who wrote this fantastic book, which I would thoroughly recommend, Currencies Cold War where he talks about the future being multi-currency, multi-money environment and how we can possibly deal with it. So I think it's interesting to approach it from a literature point of view because how things change are mainly technical, but how we feel it is emotional. How all this change of innovation in finance will impact us, it really is at the level, you know, what would I pay for when and will it be better for me? So that was really good fun. And I think the concept of using fiction and short-term non-fiction, it's a really interesting way of exploring it for people because people don't really imagine what it could be. Mm. And the event that we organized, led by John McDonnell, who is the former shadow chancellor, was exactly about that. So the CBDC and what does it mean for us? And he has led a number of initiatives about collaborative money So we joined forces and managed to get a beautiful committee room overlooking the river. I tell you, this House of Commons people have good life there. (laughs) The rooms are so amazing. So we had this lovely bunch of experts. Isa Kaminska, who works for Politico, but used to be Alphabet editor for many years. And she's very much a critic of CBDC. So she led on the critique side. And Brett Scott, who is very much pro maintaining cash, so therefore slightly skeptical of CBDCs, and also Simon Yuval, who runs Positive Money. And I work with him quite a lot because Positive Money is researching on collaborative finance and how can we join forces, not necessarily against private bank, but sort of in parallel to create better opportunities of managing money together. So we had a very interesting discussion, and I'll just pick up a couple of points from that. So one thing people conflate with CBDCs is that it's about removing cash, and it definitely isn't about removing cash. Cash is sort of removing itself quietly, and I think government has absolutely zero interest in speeding up that migration. They're just basically letting the process run and see where we end up. But cashless society is definitely not the goal of it. We will end up with cashless society, but it will happen naturally over the next 30, 40 years as the digitization of finance progresses. And I think, to be honest, it's a good thing because I come at it from retail. My day job is retail. I'm e-commerce director for the retail practice. And, you know, removing cash is strongly deflationary. When retailers can stop handling cash and worrying about the fraud and worrying about trading it from one place to another and protecting the, the employees who have to carry it, it takes a lot of money to look after money. It's about 10% of a large retail business to maintain cash, deflationary. And we need that because with the cost of living crisis, people seriously are worried about cost of everything. So at least we can cut the cost of money. Mm -hmm. So I think that is sort of slowly happening, but it's not something that the government is trying to do. It's something that is a result of changes in technology. Plus, you know, if we manage to get rid of cash completely, it would definitely reduce tax evasion, definitely reduce frauds. Like every single builder in London operates in cash. 
we probably should take a view if that's a good thing for society. Mm. Probably improve financial inclusion because if you can have digital pounds and issue people cards like Whisper, it improves inclusion, but it reduces the fraud possibility. So there's a lot to play for, but it's not the intention. CBDC is not aiming to introduce cashless society. It will run alongside and people shouldn't worry too much about it. So what's being proposed at the moment, what we discuss on the event, is a fairly straightforward idea to basically roll out digital pound and roll it out through giving everybody an account, a bank account. So the older people might remember Gyro Bank, which existed till relatively recently, and it was basically an equivalent of National Bank, but it's been absorbed by Alliance and Leicester, so we don't have one at the moment. But what I discovered is quite cute. Some Bank of England used to run its own accounts for Bank of England employees. Mm-hmm. So everybody on Bank of England staff could have their own bank account with them. And the sort code was, wait for it, 000000, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was just the nicest sort code. And they didn't really know what they've got. They quite often have assets that are completely underutilized. Mm-hmm. And they closed the system down in 2017. But the people who run it are still around. So the idea that's been kicked around is, could we reuse that and uh, leverage it to give everybody a bank account? What I liked about the proposal is that the bank account will be with current interest rates. There's a current bank account, but you'll get interest on it. Mm-hmm. And I think it solves a lot of problems because when you think about it, at the moment, there's only really wealthy people who earn interest because you have to stick your money away for a considerable period of time to get anything. You're talking about one, two, three years time when you have to leave the money in the bank before it can start incurring interest. So it's not really for people who live hand to mouth, which is a lot of people. So if we had interest rates on the current account, I think it would be quite advantageous for a large number of people who are not earning money. It it, it just makes it easier, doesn't it? I'm just going to interrupt you, Eva, because I'm on the House of Commons Library online under central bank digital currencies. Just want to read out the definition for folks to frame this a little bit. So the definition, central bank digital currencies are an electronic form of money that consumers and businesses hold with their country's central bank, such as the Bank of England. And in March 2023, four CBDCs were operating. And I don't know if you're aware of this, 114 other countries are exploring the concept at the moment. What's different about CBDCs? Most money is held electronically, but currently only large financial institutions hold deposits with the Bank of England. A CBDC would extend this facility to businesses and consumers, and a CBDC would be managed by a central bank and have the same security as cash. It would not be a cryptocurrency. We're going to talk about that. Cryptocurrencies are typically not managed by any central authority and their value can fluctuate. Yes. So so central bank digital currency idea is basically state issuing digital pounds or digital niara like in Nigeria or digital yuan like in China and bank liable for that issuance. Because one thing people don't necessarily know, there is two types of money in the circulation in every country. So in UK, your money that you get from your salary it's issued by a private bank. So if you have your money in NatWest and your employer pays the salary into NatWest, it's basically NatWest adds few digits into your account and it essentially creates money. So the money that you get from your salary 
is not to do a Bank of England. That's private banking and between you and a private bank. The money that you use physically, you know, the coins, the paper, or now plastic, in fact, that's created by Bank of England. So Bank of England is responsible for issuing the physical money. But as we see from the conversations in House of Commons, that is rapidly decreasing in demand. So the Bank of England at the moment is issuing the cash, but it's issuing less and less of it because less of this is needed. So, you know, if you forward the scenario, there will be a point where there will be no physical cash in circulation and Bank of England or any state bank will lose the ability to stabilize the economy through issuing currency, issuing money. So that's one of the concerns and that's one of the conversations that were picked up by the state bank. So what does it actually mean if we can't issue the money and therefore we can't control the money supply in the environment? We might have to deal with stable coins, large stable coins. Remember Libra, mm. when Facebook launched the idea of having Libra, which was a token-backed stable coin, and everybody panicked because that could have been quite large and the currency run by non-state actor, if significant, could have upset the financial stability of sovereign money. Yeah. So that was the second reason why people sat up and started thinking, mm, maybe the state should get involved in that. And obviously the third reason why the conversations, particularly the House of Commons, came about because Bank of England now has a team, substantial team, that's working on rolling out at least the wholesale version of it, if not retail in the short term. And they run quite large consultation process, which ends in June. So our House of Commons debate was very much about preparing for these consultations and seeing what people actually make of the proposals. Do they understand the proposals? Do they comprehend the technology behind it and the pros and cons? And from the conversation House of Commons, it looks there's a lot of misinformation about it. So I think there's a lot of education that needs to happen. Yeah. The key thing that came out of people were worried about that that's aiming to replace cash. Well, in fact, it's not. It's the opposite. It's aiming to maintain sovereign cash in the digital format. And the second one was concerned about privacy. So people are very concerned about the financial data being handled by state. And again, there's a second confusion because there's a number of different digital currencies that could be deployed by CBDC. It could be fully anonymous using blockchain. It could be semi-anonymous losing some kind of private blockchain mix with privacy-enhancing technologies, they're called pets, or it could be non-anonymous. And that's the consensus that we need to develop as a community, what people really want, because there are obviously upsides if the government knows more about our financial shenanigans, but it's obviously a sense of privacy in UK about finance is very strong. People have very emotional approach to their financial data. Like for example, in Sweden, you have to publish your salaries online. If you are a company, you have to publish what everybody earns. Can you imagine that in UK? So everybody knows what everybody earns. And certain countries have got complete opposite view because they think that more information creates more equality, which I think in Sweden actually does. So they certainly achieved that, particularly with the wage gap between men and women. They sort of address that via transparency. But can Mm. you imagine doing that in UK? You know, people have such a deep attachment to the privacy of financial transactions. They're not taking very well to any 
conversation about that bank in any shape or form accessible to government. But what we also heard was that when you think about it, people hold all the health data with NHS. NHS has got everything you've ever done and every disease you ever had. Mm. Yet we don't find that on the first page of Daily Mail. So there is a consensus and a law that these things are separated, that the state is not allowed to pry into NHS data. And a lot of people are saying that actually maybe we can extend the same to sharing the financial information, that yes, there is an advantage to state having more of it, but also there is a law that we can reinstate that the state is not allowed to look into the information. So there's a lot of room for maneuver in UK because we already have precedences for sharing very intimate data with the state, but the state is not allowed to process it. So I think this is a matter of consensus and more conversations. Where we were concerned is the misinformation, because obviously there is a lot of people who at the moment are trying to gather a little bit of hysteria about various things, and cashless society is one of them, propagating a little bit of a myth that is the state that's driving it. The state is not driving it. In fact, for Bank of England, it's not a great situation if we end up in cashless society because they're losing that ability to issue money and control stability for money. So that's one of the things that I think has gone in the online hysteria slightly the wrong way. So we were trying to address that. Eva, they're not rushing to launch CBDCs. It's not like this going live next year. The end of the consultation is the end of this month. Is that correct? The 30th of June for the UK? That's right, yes. So the consultation, everybody can submit their view by the 30th of June. And I think they are likely to take probably at least 12 months to consider that and look at the next phase of consultation next January. But, you know, between me and you, it's not far, far away because it kind of needs to happen for a variety of reasons. Sorry, I'm going to jump in. It says, looking at this website, Commons Library, Parliament UK, it says there won't be a decision on introducing a digital pound for several years. But yes, it's likely to probably happen in this decade, right? I would say probably not more than five years because there are two strong reasons why. One is that in terms of the innovation, it would unleash enormous amount of innovation because to put it together will take quite a lot of significantly innovative tech. It's very early for everybody and a lot of the solutions would have to be not so much created from scratch, but negotiated, integrated, tested, trialed. So for the city of London, it would be really good thing to explore that because we have a lot of fintech. But not on the large scale. Our fintech is kind of little solutions here and there. But our banks are as old-fashioned as they always have been. You know, it still runs of AS400 and Cobble in most of the places. Yeah. So they haven't really made the move. And, you know, my experience of innovations, you have to make a move. So when I was doing Topshop for Arcadia back in 2000, when I got to Arcadia and I look at the system and I look at this AS400 and a batch systems, like this is not going to work for online. Mm. So we proposed to set up a completely separate organization from scratch to make sure that the transactions can be processed real time and the orders for these beautiful dresses can be taken in real time. And we did that. We worked with ICL, created completely different architecture, launched it, delivered to a few million. And only then, when we knew what was needed from completely fresh, from scratch technology, as new as it could have been, We then integrated it back 
to the mothership. And by then we managed to move the original systems developed a bit. So it was very much let it rip at the beginning and ring fence it with completely new technology. And also new people, right? So it's people who understand digital, people who understand the new technology, the emerging technology, and are not held back by the legacy, which is also legacy thinking, right? And I think that's where Bank of England is, because lovely as they are, and I think they're extremely dedicated people, the people I met from there were really impressive. True civil servants with a dedication, and they know that when something go wrong, they will work 24 by 7 mm. until the response is created. Amazing people. But the average age, I think, is in the early 60s. Right. So when you walk around, there's enormous amount of experience, there's enormous amount of judgment, mm. but not that much in terms of cutting edge tech because they never needed it. And the fact that they closed their banking infrastructure, the zero 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 bank accounts, yeah. Well that was just crazy because it was already on the horizon. So I think they realized that they just need to basically recruit a whole pile of new people. It has to be. And they're kind of doing that, except from what I'm seeing at the moment, they're recruiting very young grads as researchers. You know, these grads are not going to write them cutting edge smart contract solutions. So it will have to be public-private partnership in some form. But they can commission, you know, they can commission stuff. They can throw development proposals. They can put a bit of money behind research and making prototypes. And that will be enough probably because the tech community will respond but you need to drive it from the top. Yeah, and they're going to need a lot of advice and they're going to need, as you say, work with enterprise-level businesses from the blockchain space. Do you want to say a few words about the technology? It will have to be blockchain, right? We're talking about blockchain, probably Ethereum. And there are businesses out there that have been consulting with central banks on this and they're right to because these central banks simply do not have the expertise. There's no in-house expertise in this new emerging technology. Yes, I think there is a couple of organizations who have been advising. Actually, David Birch, who was an expert on our book and his Hyperion Consulting, they are quite closely involved in looking at the options. But the options are quite wide at the moment because, as I said, it could be fully blockchain, it could be private blockchain mm -hmm. and completely centralized, or it could be something else because there's a whole pile of privacy-enhancing technologies that are on the table. And when you actually look at the volume, you know, you have to assume that everybody in UK will get that bank account and maybe, let's say, 20, 30% of people will start using it in year one. That's enormous volume. Yeah. I'm very positive on using blockchain on a larger scale, but we're not quite there yet because the consensus process, the consensual development of approvals is still quite laborious, quite energy consuming and time consuming. So it kind of happens and it's getting better, but it's, I would say it's not yet at the point where you can run central currency on it. So there would have to be some hybrids which would allow scale. And that's, I think probably will be private blockchain yeah, because of the nature of the beast, just the scale of it. Like, you know, blockchain can handle a lot, but I can't see that at the moment scaling to handling the country either of the platforms scaling to the country level, daily operations or millions of transactions. I mean, to be honest, the current scale, as we move to digital payments and we spend all our daily acquisitions in digital, this backend infrastructure on payment supply people 
has been really creaking. So everybody's mm-hmm. building super fast, but it's not walk in the park. The tech is not there yet, right? It's not the mature tech yet. It's not there, which is why mm. I'm excited about, you know, Bank of England commissioned the tech. Mm. We would have moved forward quite fast because startups or smaller companies, even Ethereum, it's hard to start saying, okay, how it would work if we handle Japanese central banking system, central digital currency? What's involved for 110 million people? Or, you know, what's involved in 230 million people in US? That question we need to be asked. And that question can only be asked if there is money behind that can sponsor the research and prototyping. Because it might well be that we'll end up with some kind of hybrid of account-based and token-based CBDCs. It might be that what we can do technically, it might be a roadmap that we start from something hybridy. And then as the take-up increases, we move on to more secure. But I think it's a roadmap because I can see there's nothing on the shelf today. No. However you want to speed it up, there's nothing on the shelf. And it won't be unless that question is asked. So Bank of England or Bank of Japan or Bank of Singapore, they're asking these questions, but they're not putting money behind it in a big number. They're just sort of very early stage. It's our MVP. What is the MVP? <laughs> yes, yes, because the distributed ledger technologies, they're all progressing, but the likely volume of data throughput would probably prevent it being used for the CBDC. That's kind of my current reading. But, you know, there is many options yeah. from account-based to token-based. There's many hybrids, but that question needs to be posed to the industry. I mean, this is the scale that we've just not applied blockchain to before, right? So this is a huge project and there's a lot of learning that needs to happen. Yes, and also the cybersecurity on it, because when you think about it, currently our banks are not necessarily up there in terms of cybersecurity. The direction (laughs) of travel is that they just accepted that, you know, here and there, the hack will happen and everybody just insured themselves to the nines. I don't think there's a clear advantage to either distributed ledger solution or a conventional centralized system Mm. in terms of cybersecurity robustness. It's just simply the difference in vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. In conventional architectures, you have the main vulnerabilities, the failure of the top node, so through targeted hacking attack. But with the DLTs, with the distributed ledger, the primary vulnerability is in consensus mechanism which is super susceptible to denial of service attacks. So you kind of like, there isn't really a golden solution. It's probably going to be a bit of a Venn diagram of a bit of this and a bit of that. Yeah. And you're probably best of stacking different layers to make it harder. But we're not comparing ourselves with that project with the current banks because the current banks are not particularly cyber secure. So this would have to be better than what we have now. Yes, I mean, there are lots of moving parts, very complex, and I can imagine loads and loads of parties will need to be involved. And then, of course, we've got this layer, which is the public. I mean, obviously, from the technology aspect, this is very complicated, but also just understanding how it's going to play out in the public sphere. And I really like the work that you've done, Eva, with CyberSalon in using literature to communicate and to connect and to try and generate this conversation. I think it's so important to have the various stakeholders, however you want to define it, involved in this, because this is going to be a massive change on every level. I think it's about creating consensual futures, as Stephen Oram calls it, because Mm -hmm. for the last 15 years, we were very much as a public on the receiving end of Palo Alto technologies. Mm -hmm. 
So whatever is possible technically gets built. It tends to get built in California because that's where the funding is. Mm-hmm. And it tends to get thrown at us. Yeah. And then we don't really have much choice, accept it, run with it and complain. But it's not a consensual use of tech. You know, like Facebook, when it started, was amazing because everybody could connect and it was lovely to be able to follow what your family is doing on the other end of the world with a simple photo sharing application. And then the next thing you knew, we were the product. And the next thing we knew, they want us to buy on it, not mm-hmm. to connect with each other. So something the core doctor, of course, enshitification of platforms. Mm-hmm. And if we're not careful, we might end up that with money. If we're not having the conversations and the dialogue with the public, how do we want to collaborative bank, it Mm -hmm. will just get thrown at us without really people understanding what's happening. Because I think in general, in UK, the level of financial literacy is quite small. You know, so people who invest relatively small percent of the population comparing to US, where Mm -hmm. basically everybody is an investor because they have to. And even smaller amount of women are involved in investing, as you've always been trying to mitigate that. So when people talk about digital currency, digital banking, a lot of people say, oh, you know, that's too complicated. And it isn't complicated at all. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, it will be a bank account for you on which hopefully there will be interest rates being paid to you for the keeping money there and ability to use digital pound in the same way like you use now, but with the funds going into national growth funds. So basically, if we have national bank, it's combining the money for all of us to make a bit more consensual decisions how it's being used. So it's kind of bringing people closer mm. to actually have an opinion and a view and a say mm-hmm. on how our money is being used. Because our money at the moment is taken, the tax is taken. And once in four years, you can voice something on the elections. But with our current two-party system, it's very little that individual can really voice. The elections are usually run in a way that's uh, decided by the boundaries. And if you're in the wrong place, yes, you can vote tactically, but it's not much you can say about anything. Mm. While if it's our bank accounts running the National Growth Fund, you will have a lot more involvement. People will be more hands-on. And I think that's the direction that John McDonnell is coming at it with. So from the labor point of view, it's very exciting to see that they back on the conversation because it was the labor government back in late 60s, early 70s, Wilson government, that introduced Gyro Bank, National Bank at that point, because people didn't have bank accounts. Banks were only interested in serving very middle-class customer. And working people didn't have bank accounts. So Wilson introduced Gyro Bank to give people the opportunity to bank. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty radical. And that was done by labor in a labor government. And it survived many years very successfully. And was also technically incredibly innovative because it was the first fully computerized bank. And also the first bank that had optic technology deployed for identity. So it was all in all, it was a huge explosion of social progress as well as technical progress. So I'm kind of looking at CBDCs in the same way, that it could be a good combination of social progress and inclusivity. I think that's really interesting, Eva. One of the things I obviously talk about on the show a lot is how important it is to be inclusive, why we want and we need more women to invest, because as we know, men still continue to dominate the investment space. And it means that they represent their own preferences and their own interests. And women are often left out. And there's a there's a very common adage, which I know you've heard, Eva, which is design it for men and you build it for men, design it for women and you build it for everyone. 
and we need to ensure before we start building the tech that we've thought about and that we've included and represent the preferences, the views, the experiences, the lived experience of every stakeholder. Otherwise, we're going to keep building these systems and this technology that works for a very small segment of the population. And we're going to continue to exacerbate the inequality and the wealth gap and so on, which which causes enormous social, political, economic problems. So we need to, and it's exactly what you're saying, sit down and start designing this technology and the solution with that intent in mind before diving in and just building a technology solution that doesn't consider 95% of the population and is kind of all about how can a certain group of people make money out of it. That's exactly right. And I think that's the point that Wendy Grossman was exploring in her story. It was a story about a young woman seeking abortion in a state that has introduced prohibition, but because her payment data was linked to the health data, she was declined the option to choose because the bank, using programmable algorithm, stopped her from exercising her choice over her reproductive decisions. And it's a pretty scary story when you think about it, because it was written two years before Americans gone met Gosh. and changed their view on abortion law. So mm-hmm. I asked Wendy how she felt it was coming. She says, well, because, you know, Americans are always trying to get the control over women's reproductive choices and because the power is in the male patriarchy, it's always was going to be ending up in this way. And it's pretty much in a number of states, it's already reality. When the book was published, it was still sci-fi and then it became a reality. And so, you know, that's my kind of strong interest in women being at the core and at the beginning of this design process, because the process you design is the process you have to live with. And if you're not part of the design, you might get something that is detrimental to your future choices. So UK is in a better state in terms of law covering health data versus payment data. But you know, if we're not in that conversation, we learned that nobody will look after our interests. We have to look after our own interests. Well, we're seeing time and time again this play out in the tech world. And obviously the conversations now being had around AI, gender bias is inherent. It's inherent in human beings. It will continue and it will get worse if we do not think about how we design better. And we can't have a very small segment of the population designing these huge technology solutions that will have a massive impact on absolutely everyone. It just doesn't make sense. It causes much more problems than it helps to solve. So getting it right from the outset, getting the right people in the room to design so that it reflects everyone's preferences and lived experiences is absolutely pivotal. I'm hoping with Labour taking stronger interest in it, it will push the right economies to the right conversations. You know, Francis Coppola, who has been a strong proponent of quantitative easing, mainly on the grounds of the benefits for the family, she is now looking at taking a position and developing papers for Labour on the topic. So I think as long as we have women financial journalists like Isa, female economists like Frances Coppola, or Victoria Bateman, who wrote this fantastic book, The Sex Factor, and she's looking at so basically we just have to make sure that there is enough of a body of experts mm-hmm. from all the range of society that then take a view. So we don't end up with something accidental because like nobody designs on purpose 
to exclude this and that group. But it just happens. If you don't have enough people on the table, then the shortest technical route is taken. And that's quite often not representing the interests of everybody around. I want to talk briefly about cryptocurrencies. You're a bit of a crypto fan, aren't you? Yes, yes. I think in terms of the future, it's something that will solve a lot of problems we have. So yes, I've been a mentor on Blog Dojo for the last few years, which is a web-free accelerator based in East London. And I have to say that it's been a very successful process. So from taking the advantage of London already quite developed fintech community, but building and directing and upscaling and learning together. It was a really good opportunity. So we are on the cohort five now, produced about 10 startups per cohort. And so far, the results were really astonishingly successful. So people are building tech. Again, if you pose the question, people will build, but you just have to pose the question. So Block Dodger is very strong on finding out where are the gaps, which elements of payments and Web3 are still not fully formed and where the new tool could help and supporting the teams through it. And I'm really pleased to say that quite few of the teams were female-led. Mm-hmm. So there's a fantastic team at the moment, which is supporting no-code NFT issuance, which is something for artists to start participating without having the technical knowledge. And that's doing very well. So I think London is a really good place to do payment technology. I'm a payment tech expert and have been for the last 20 years, but it's just good to see that we have ended up leading the conversations and filling the gaps a bit faster than others. So yeah, so it's been great. Cryptos are different. I think there are about, what, 25,000 cryptocurrencies globally, but you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the sort of the blue chips, if you like. There are a few others that are owned by a centralized authority which is what the digital pound would be. So they are quite different. And to your earlier point, it's likely that we're going to end up with multi-currencies and they have different purposes, different uses. I'm very encouraged, like you say as well, that London is fast becoming a crypto hub. I think I saw an announcement the other day that Andreessen Horowitz, the VC firm and their crypto team, they're investing, but they're starting an office and there'll be a crypto academy, I think, in London in the coming year or so. There's a lot of focus now on London because we've actually done a great job in working on the regulation framework, which isn't finalized yet, but we're much further ahead, I believe, than the US. And obviously, there's quite a lot of negative stuff going on in the US around what the SEC is up to at the minute. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great opportunity for London because while the Americans are trying to procrastinate and sort it out in the courts, which is a really silly idea, UK has taken a bit more progressive round. And also what was interesting, Miami has just decided to outlaw CBDCs in Florida. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah. I think complete misunderstanding, complete lack of education, what it is, but they ended up banning it, which means the huge developing web-free industry in Florida will probably move. It's already been moving to Dubai over the last few months, <laughs> but it's probably going to move to Dubai and to London. So we might end up to be the real hub in the meantime, as everybody else is trying to understand what's going on. So it's a great opportunity. Yeah, it is. And so how do you think CBDCs will impact the cryptocurrency market or will it? 
I think it will be a parallel development because they are not mutually exclusive. And mm -hmm. we don't know which CBDC format UK will settle on. Will it be token-based? Will it be decentralized? Will it be fully centralized? You know, those decisions are still to be made. Mm -hmm. But I don't see any particular problem with that because if you go on your daily spending and you want to buy something in a bookshop, you probably will use CBDCs, your digital pound from your Bank of England current account to pay for that. But you may not want to be paying with digital pounds for things which are related to your investment decisions. So you might want to use the crypto for that. So I think it depends on the purpose. There will be, as David Birch is saying in his book, Currencies Cold War, there will be different money for different purposes, mm. also geographically, because it's so cheap now to verify money. I can't see why the cities shouldn't run their own money. So London coin, Manchester coin, because it's digital, it's very easy to do. It's much cheaper to do than it used to be. So you probably will have different coins in different geographies as well as a different purpose. So I don't think Facebook will go back to Libra, but I would say Twitter will do something. So you'll have Twitter coin possibly to spend on your gaming online or online investment. There will be stable coins about mm. and there will be CBDCs around. And I think they will find a balance and it will be up to people how they want to choose. Yes, I think there's been conversation for a while about Twitter and micropayment. And of course, we know Elon Musk owns Twitter and he loves Dogecoin, doesn't he? So to what extent that might become a payment on Twitter, but of course, Bitcoin in the back end, that could be the technology to settle payments very fast. I'm very excited about it because we've tried to do micropayments for a very long time. And my experience of anything that you granularize creates growth. So if you can go down lower layer, make something smaller, exchangeable, it usually creates growth. And micropayments would exactly do that. You know, this whole debate why we don't have local press, because we haven't got micropayments to pay a few pence here and there for the articles we want to read. And as a result of it, local press has died yeah. because the subscriptions only really work for very large publication. So this is one area that we definitely need micropayments because we definitely need local press yeah. to you know, keep an eye on local corruption, which is in my area in Camden, I don't even go into it, but we're very much suffering from local press diminishing. So micropayments are necessary, but at the moment, the infrastructure is centralized and very expensive to clear the micropayments. That's what the holdup is. Mm. It's not that people don't want it, they want it, but it's very expensive to provide them. And by going into CBDCs, that might definitely give us an opportunity. But maybe Elon can figure something out on the Twitter end to make the micropayments possible, because that would be definitely a strong growth element. It will push a lot of things positive socially, but also financially. Yeah, I love the idea that you can very quickly, instantly reward pay for creators, right? There are loads of creators on Twitter, allow users to reward these creators pay for the utility rather than the money going to an advertiser or whoever, the company that's getting paid by the advertiser, which is talking a little bit more about the crypto use case. But micropayments, I think, are incredibly powerful and it's going to unlock lots of niche markets and will give people the opportunity to actually start earning money for a lot of their creative endeavors. So it should unlock a lot more creativity. 
Yeah, and we have a lot of examples of how it worked before, because, you know, back in the day, before internet became a thing, there was something called CompuServe. And CompuServe was a centralized bulletin board. My boss in Topshop was like number 0007 on it. So <laughs> very early adopter. But CompuServe had this micropayments sorted because it was a bulletin board, so it was fully centralized. And they were able to let us read single article, let's say on Wall Street Journal or single article on Journal of Organizational Psychology, which was I needed at the time, and pay them, you know, 50p, 40p for that, as opposed to me having to fork out nearly £1,000 per year on subscriptions to some of the scientific papers that I need. So that worked very well, but unfortunately, they didn't see internet coming and didn't migrate early enough and the whole thing collapsed. But the learnings and the case studies from there are very strong, how micropayment could work. Yeah, very interesting. That's worth checking out. I'm conscious of time, Eva. So my last question, if you were to look ahead, thinking about the next five to seven years, so basically by 2030, if you had a crystal ball, where will we be with CBDCs, Bitcoin, Ethereum? Any thoughts? You know, I think there is a question about what do we want to push? Do we want to push financialization, which basically is expanding the finance as part of the economy? And UK finance is probably too big part of the economy already. Or do we want to push financial innovation? Because that's a very different thing. And my hope is that we will choose financial innovation and support the technical community with coming up with the answers to the questions that are posed, you know, how can we scale digital currency to the country level? How can we do these big things? And then the innovation will come to drive it. So I would hope the way it's going and UK is positioned in a reasonably good form and it needs to do something because our banks are so old fashioned. The current quadruple of the banks they need to do a lot of work to catch up with modernity. So I think there's a lot of reasons why people want to push financial innovation. And I hope that in a five years time, we will have at least the form outlined of what CBDCs people will want and accept, as well as having a thriving crypto ecosystem in parallel. And I think it's the public voice that will choose what level of privacy they need, what level of centralization they can accept and what level of convenience they desire. And somewhere in the middle of it, the fintech community will find the answers when we always do. So it's driving the market, giving people the choices, educating people to make those choices and listening. And I hope we can close that loop better than we do at the moment. So more financial innovation, more financial education and collaborative interests in the future banking for UK to leverage all our savings and all our money into building the country we want to build. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. Just to underline the earlier point, and we need to absolutely make sure that the right people are sitting at that table, because then we're going to be asking the right questions, not just representing one segment, right, but across the board. And, and that's what's really, really needed. And I'm so excited that London is in the center of this massive change. Hope we will get a lot of innovation and a lot of inspiration. So hopefully we'll speak to you soon on the feedback on that. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse, or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>